morning, everyone. Beautiful day today. A little bit different than last week, I think. But uh, we're enjoying God's creation all over again. Driving in from, from outside of here, it was, uh, the mountains have never been clearer. With snow on top, it was just another reminder of God's goodness. And uh, when that melts, all the farmers will be happy. We get the moisture on their, their fields. Tell me, when you were a kid, did you, uh, did you ever get together in your neighborhood and play like uh, hide-and-seek or football or different kind of games you had to divide up into teams? Well, we had, I think they counted 54 kids on our block or something like that. It was Crescent I lived in in Saskatoon. In our place, our, honestly, the front yard in our house was trashy because it was like dug up and brown spots, but that's because we played football on it every day. And uh, we would have all the kids come, maybe eight or ten kids would come play football in our front yard. And um, my youngest, my younger brother Mel and my older brother Richard and I would, would all kind of participate with that. And we gathered together, okay, let's pick teams. And uh, normally uh, my older brother was one of the captains and uh, some other kid in the neighborhood was a captain. And they start picking, okay, I pick you, I pick you, I pick you. But as we were picking, some, strangely, my, youngest, my younger brother wasn't anywhere to be seen. And um, I thought he wanted to play. Well, as it came to the end, my, my older brother would say, and I finally picked Melvin, who would come out from behind a car where he was hiding the whole time because they needed to be on the same team. They had all their special plays, you know, the, the little button hook one and the long J and the twin steps out, turn around, and you get the ball kind of stuff. And uh, so it was nice to always be chosen, but... Uh, and I was normally uh, a bigger, taller kid, and I, was, I think I must have been the, the blocker or something like that. So the three of us, we would play all the time. It was nice to be picked. You didn't want to be the last one picked, but Mel didn't mind as long as he was hiding <laughs> and got to be a... Well, I had always heard in churches, and today we're looking at Romans chapter 3, and it's, a, it's another... You know, every chapter is a tough chapter, and I'm having a lot of fun with these chapters. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, Romans chapter 3, we'll be going through most of the chapter today, uh, but I'm going to try and summarize. Paul continues along his theme of talking to the Jewish people in the church in Rome, and he's trying to give them some instruction on, uh, in perspective on just what it means to be in Christ, because up to this point, uh, Jewish people have been depending entirely upon the law and the prophets, and if you follow the law, you're okay with God. They still had the temple. They could still offer their sacrifices, and, um, but I, I, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was not explained well enough, and hopefully today I can explain it well enough to you so you don't have to be confused all your life like me. But I kind of thought that there were two ways to get to heaven. I thought that one way was through Jesus, and the other way was if you were a Jew, that you had special privileges of some sort, that you were a chosen people, and God wasn't going to just abandon you, that if you would make it, you get a pass kind of thing, uh, regardless of what you've done if you're a Jew. It's kind of what I thought, that somehow they were unique amongst all the peoples in, in, in the earth, and uh, they had a special place in Paul's heart. Well, Paul is going to tell us today that the Jews did have an advantage, and that they were the ones to whom God brought the law and the prophets. They were the ones through whom the Messiah was going to come. They had a special role to play, responsibilities, because they entered into a covenant relationship with God. It's like, okay, 
I, God says, I promise, Abraham, if you will make this agreement with me, then you are going to be um, the person through whom I'm going to bring the Messiah, the promised one, the one who will redeem a uh, lost world and mankind to myself. And are you, are you up for it, Abraham? <laughs> are you willing to enter into this covenant? Because if you do, there's a lot of responsibilities you're going to have to follow. The special role also came the special responsibility. So the role would be in place for all time, but the benefits for being within this relationship with God uh, would be dependent upon keeping their agreement with God to be faithful to Him. So they were chosen, but the term came with requirements. So some of the things, and this is what's been challenging me all week in this chapter. Genesis 17, 7 God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants. He's talking to Abraham. Me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Then Exodus 19.6, he says, you will be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Exodus 19.5, he says, now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you will be a peculiar treasure to me from all the people's for all the earth is mine. So what I was trying to figure out is what does it mean to be chosen? What does it mean to be a chosen people, a holy priesthood, a nation that is, is a peculiar, peculiar treasure to God? And so what I started to understand in the studies this week is that chosen does not necessarily imply special privileges or that they are more special than any other nation. Um, it means that um, if they were chosen, they had special duties and responsibilities as outlined in the covenants God made with them. So if, if they decide to accept this agreement, then God would protect them and bless them and, and lead them and guide them. And they would begin to be the one nation through whom he would reveal himself to a world. So it was a big responsibility. There was no monotheistic society at this time. They all worshiped multiple gods, multiple pagan gods that were out there, and um, God was going to say, no, 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 there's only one, and I'm going to demonstrate my power through this little nation of Israel. The Rabbinical Assembly of New York in 2003 declared this, we are thankful that God has enlightened us, the Jewish people, so that unlike the pagans, we worship the true God and not idols. There is no inherent superiority in being Jewish, but we do assert the superiority of a monotheistic belief over paganism. Although paganism still exists today, we are no longer the one, only ones who have a belief in one God. In 1999, the Pittsburgh Convention of the uh, Conference of American Rabbis stated this, we affirm that the Jewish people are bound to God by an eternal covenant, as reflected in our varied understandings of creation and revelation and redemption, we are Israel, a people aspiring to holiness, singled out through our ancient covenant and our unique history among the nations to be witnesses to God's presence. We are linked by that covenant and that history to all Jews in every age and every place. So, even the, the rabbis, the Jewish people, understand that they are not a superior kind of people. They are on an even plane with everyone else. But God chose them out of everybody to create a people that he could reveal himself to the entire world. They were his instrument 
to bring salvation to us, to everyone, if they agreed to follow in the covenant. So just, just to reiterate that, that um, the Jewish people were not superior or more important, several times throughout the Old Testament, he, he was about to wipe them out completely and start all over again. So it wasn't like they, were, they got a pass. It was like, no, like, <laughs> you guys are messing up. I'm about to just wipe you all out. He talked to Moses and said, you know, I'm going to start all over again with you and your family. Forget Abraham and all of that. And Moses says, no, 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 no. I'm like, let's, let's not go there. Let's, let's just hold off for a minute. And he, he helped to save his people from utter destruction. So in Romans chapter 3, that's kind of the background that we're getting to, with what, what Paul's going to say. And then we're going to look at some applications here. So we're going to read through uh, a lot of the chapter here, if you wouldn't mind following along. And as I, before I start, I just want to say a quick prayer. Father God, this is your word that you have written through your servant, Paul, to encourage churches throughout the ages. You give instructions here, Father, and I pray that as I walk through this chapter that your words would come through, that I would not misstep or misspeak anything that's not true, uh, guide the correct interpretation to hit the hearts and the minds of the people here today and listening online, that you would be glorified in this and that your attention would all be upon you and not your messenger. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So what then, Paul says, What advantage is there to being a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, he says. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles or the teachings of God. What if some of the Jews were unfaithful? Does uh, does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? He says, by no means. Let God be true and everyone a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Verse 5 says, but if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He's speaking in a human way. By no means, he says, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned a sinner? And, And why not do evil that good can come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, and their condemnation is just, what then? Well, let me just stop there. He's, he's kind of saying, how about we do bad things so it makes God look good? How about we, we sin so that his righteousness can be imputed upon us and forgiveness and everything works out? And saying, why, why are you even thinking these thoughts? Uh, it's, it's all about God. It's not about us. He's going to go on to say, what are, are, are Jews better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's kind of a bit of overkill here. Uh, Verse 19, so now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, I like this verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and you know this verse, and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. But it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So there's a five-syllable word here that we need to deal with called propitiation. And when I was looking at the, the definition, going, wow, that's kind of simple, actually. It's a long word with a simple concept. Propitiation, that means uh, when you offend someone, you do what it takes to make it right. You, you become, you, you, may, you work things out with them. So if you broke your mom's teacup, I mean, it was an accident, you know, you didn't see it, you accidentally knocked it off the table and it shatters on the ground. When you go to the store and buy her a box of chocolates and give her a little rose and a card saying, I'm so sorry about breaking your teacup, you're making propitiation. You're, you're, you're reconciling with your mom, saying, I'm sorry for what I did. Let me make it up to you. When Jesus came, that's what he did on our behalf. He, he, he realized that we had messed up. And so he's going to make, make it up on our behalf before God. He's going to make things right with God for us. He's stepping in to our place and saying, you know what, Father, Tom really messed up. Um, I, I will pay the price for his sin. I will step in. Um, I will take the penalty on his behalf. So he is making things right with God on my behalf. It's the act of expiating or atoning for sin or for wrongdoing. Do you harm someone? You do what it takes to make it right again. It's a long word, but it can actually be used. Um, if I forgot to pick up the milk and the eggs for my wife on the way home, I got to propitiate somehow. I'm going to get home. I'm going to get back in the car. I'm going to go out to the store. I'm going to get it, and maybe with a little treat, in addition to make things right. But God, the, the, the penalty of sin is satisfied through Jesus Christ. We believe in him. He steps in and makes atonement for our sin. That's what this word propitiation means. 1 John 2.1, John says the same thing. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So he goes on in verse 27 of chapter 3, he says, then what becomes of, of our boasting? And this is what he was dealing with in the church in Rome. They were proud that they were Jewish. They were proud that they kept the laws. They, were, they said that, you know, we can earn our way into favor with God. And he said, you can't boast. You can't boast in the law by works. He says, no, but by the law of faith. For we, are, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, Everyone, basically, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He says, no, on the contrary, we uphold the law. So let me just stop, and this whole idea of law, it's a little bit confusing. Another one of these things growing up, I didn't understand. What is all these laws? Like, does it, does it mean I don't have to drive 90 kilometers an hour on the highway because it's the law. I don't have, I don't have, I'm not bound by the law anymore. I don't have to pay my taxes because I'm not bound by the law. Well, let's look at this for just a second. There's, there's four different kinds of laws in the scriptures. And uh, if you didn't know this, this is an, it's interesting and it can help actually uh, explain a lot of what's going on in the Old Testament. So first of all, there's the moral law. Moral law would be 
Ten Commandments, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, those kinds of things. We can go to the, the last slide. And there's a ceremonial law or the religious kind of duty law, washing your hands, the way you do the sacrifices, uh, how far you can walk on the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, these things. Uh, ceremonial law is largely what Paul is talking about here in this text. But there's a civil law. So following the, the, the rules of the road, you know, following what the police have to say. The police are the, the, the ones who help us follow the civil law. Uh, governments have rules, and uh, we are bound by those rules. That would be what we, we follow today for the, for the most part. There's also natural laws, which, where is it? Here it is. So, like, if a natural law says, if I drop this, it's not going to float in the air. It's going gonna, it's gonna to land on the ground because there's a law of gravity. It just it drops. Every single time I do that, it just keeps dropping, not nine out of ten times or eight out of ten times. It's, it's not going to start floating in the air just randomly because there's a law in place of gravity, a law of entropy, a law of conservation of energy. These kinds of things are natural laws that you can't mess with. You want to leave the planet Earth, well, then the laws change because there's a different law in space regarding gravity. But still, you're orbiting somewhere the gravity of the sun. You're still locked into some kind of gravitational pull. So natural law, you can't really mess with unless you're Jesus. You know, walk on water, the energy part where you can turn five fishes and loaves into feeding thousands. The natural law didn't apply to Jesus. He's above that law. The civil law... Yeah, he wants society to function properly, and we, need to, we're, we are bound by the civil laws. Whatever country you live in, you have to follow their laws. That's what even we'll get into in, the, in Romans. Follow the authorities put over you. Honor the emperor, he says. The moral law, yeah, you still got to follow the moral law. We're not throwing out the Ten Commandments. These moral laws actually tell us who God is, what God is like. They tell us his nature and his character, what he values. So don't murder, why not? Because God values life. Don't commit adultery. Why? Because God values commitments. Don't worship idols. Why not? Because God values fidelity and faithfulness. Every law tells us about who God is, what he values, what's important to him. Honor your parents. How come? Because God values respect for elders. What about not taking his name in vain? Well, God values himself. He doesn't want to be disrespected by those he's protecting and healing and providing for and guiding. He doesn't want the people he loves to show disdain and emptiness, using his name in an empty, demeaning way. He's God. If you want to know what God's like, look at the laws, because he's saying, I want you to keep in mind exactly the same kinds of things that are important to me. So the ceremonial and religious laws of worship, very detailed, particularly um, because they represented things that were going to turn attention to Jesus later on. And so when Jesus came, he kind of, he fulfilled those laws, the ceremonial religious laws, and it turned to him. He paid the, pri the price, the penalty on the cross. He, he resurrected from the dead, the power of God through him. It's like we don't need the ceremonial laws anymore because we have them fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So when people say, well, you know, 
Look at the laws in the Old Testament. Women shouldn't wear pads. You know, you should, they shouldn't come into the church un, with their head uncovered going, ceremonial laws. Yeah, they're not re- we're not Jewish. <laughs> we're not living in the Old Testament. We have Jesus. We're Gentiles. We're, we're under a new covenant. That was put away. Not the moral laws, the civil laws, or the natural laws, but just the ceremonial laws. So when people say, why aren't you following all the rules of the Bible? Going, because some of them no longer apply. Just the ceremonial laws have been completed. They're fulfilled in Jesus. He was a sacrifice for sins, which the law required. His sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, making it right with God, is applied to us the moment we believe. It's not universal in that everyone is now saved because he died for everyone. He did die for the sins of everyone, but it only is applied to you the moment you believe and put your faith in him. There's a remedy for the sin. There's an answer to the questions of life. There's a response when we cry out to God and it's found in Jesus. There's a medication for our spiritual wounds and ointments for our mistaken decisions and treatments for our misguided behaviors and it's all found in Jesus. So Paul is saying in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and they fall short. Everyone has sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And so no one is exempt from the penalty of sin, not the Jew, not the Gentiles, which is everyone else. The Jews don't get a pass from the penalty of sin. They, they face the same judgment as everyone else who are apart from Christ. So verse 9, when he says, are Jews any better off? says, not at all, actually, for we have already charged at all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. He says in verse 22, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the tough, the tough verse, I'll just touch on it briefly, comes in chapter 11, verse 25. Uh, this is the one that's always kind of confused me, and I'm going to jump ahead a few chapters so that I can just bring it into this. It says, Romans eleven twenty five. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, hardening of their hearts, that they, they could not accept Jesus for who he was. They did not believe that he was the Son of God, he, the promised Messiah. They, they crucified him. Why? Because it was for us. It was for all of mankind. There was a partial, it says, a partial hardening of their hearts until the Gentiles, that's us, everyone else had an opportunity to hear the gospel, to hear the message of hope in Jesus Christ. It says, in this way, all, it says, uh, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And verse 26 says, And in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So on the surface, it kind of seems to contradict what Paul is just saying. There's no distinction. And here it says, well, wait a minute. Like all Israel will be saved. He's saying, the, the best commentators that I read on this verse says, at the end of time, there will be a, a, an opportunity or um, there will be a change of heart. It's like their hearts will be softened. God's people, instead of rejecting Jesus as the promised one, will say, wait a minute, I think we better take a second look at this. We, you know what? He did fulfill all the prophets, all the prophecies. He did come as a sacrificial lamb. He, he did, by his teaching, reveal that God the Father is who we have known all along. He didn't come like we thought, but he came nonetheless, and he is true. So this verse is saying not every single person in Israel 
will be saved, but Israel as a group will have an opportunity to turn, to reflect, and to repent, and to accept Christ. Those that are alive, those that are in that, that time. It's like uh, there's a relationship with a people, but not every single person is going to follow the rules. And so generally, the nation of Israel, he's saying, there'll be a, a turning of hearts, a softening, and a belief in Jesus as the Messiah. So how do we find propitiation for our sin? The way I see it, have you ever watched those old Western movies? I don't know, Matt Dillon and all those, all those the Western shows. They're all black and white, I think, anymore. But uh, sometimes in these movies, you know, the, the, the sheriff was getting old and grizzled and wasn't very effective and wasn't chasing after the bad guys anymore and the people were complaining and we need a new sheriff and so, soon enough, a new sheriff comes and everything gets set in order. Things get done that are supposed to be done, and, and the law is brought back. When Jesus came, I see it like there's a new sheriff in town. The old law is done. The old laws can sit down. They've done what they're supposed to do. There's a new sheriff in town. And it's Jesus, and he is setting everything right. There's no inferior and superior people anymore. There's no better cultures or worse cultures. They're just different. There's just other ones. We were all created in the image of God, and we will all stand before him one day to give an account of our life. We all have to have a remedy for sin. And it's because of the new sheriff in town. He takes away our sin if we place our faith in him. God doesn't owe the Jewish people anything they can't demand special privileges based on their historical relationship with God or covenants made with their ancestors. Every single person is accountable to God for their sins, regardless of the genealogy or culture or national identity. So I was actually a bit shocked. I went on a mission trip to Liberia, um, capital city of Monrovia, with some Christian businessmen out of uh, the United States. And uh, as we flew over there and we were talking in some of the airport lounges, I started to I guess I started to, to bait one of the young businessmen a little bit, uh, just for the sake of having a nice argument. And uh, I was saying, tell me, why do all your presidents keep saying, God bless America? As if America were some kind of special country. And um, I said, why not God bless Norway? Why not God bless Canada? God bless Argentina? You know, he says, well, because our country was founded um, by those fleeing religious persecution. And uh, our country um, was based on Christian values and principles. And I said, so what happened then? <laughs> I mean, 9-11 to me was like God saying, wake up, call. You no longer have my protection. It's, uh, you, you have strayed. You're kind of on your own in a sense. And he, he was offended that I would think that his nation wasn't somehow superior or better loved by God. I said, no, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same team. We're all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God blesses any person who will put their faith in him and protect and guide any person. I don't see any particular country or nation as more special than anyone else. So Paul explains to his fellow Jews that they should not be considering their Jewishness as a privilege or that they're somehow superior to Gentiles or that their culture and heritage is better than anyone else. He doesn't believe in superiority of race, but he does believe in the importance of their responsibilities to mankind. 
they were given a very special responsibility to, to reveal him to everyone else. That's why God did what he did in the, in, in the wilderness with, the, with his people. That's why he defended, uh, knocked down the walls of Jericho. That's why he, he, he brought fiery chariots and, and angels to defend his prophets in, in little towns that were about to be wiped out. That's why he did everything he did so that people would, for the first time, see that the God of the Jews, the God that the Israelites served, was the true God, the, the one and only God. That's what Paul was trying to say when he went to Athens and Mars Hill, debating with all the philosophers. That unknown God that you have worshipped, uh, the statue to, let me tell you who he is. Everything else here was created by him. He's the only one that we need to bow down to. These rest, they're pretenders. I can tell you about the one true God. He was bringing the same message that the Jewish people were given for the Gentiles. So they had a privilege of knowing God first. He introduced himself to them, and then they introduced us to the God that created us. They were special in that from their genealogies, the Messiah was going to come. They would produce the one who would bring salvation to the world. So that, that gives them a special place, a treasured place in God's heart that his son came from the Jewish people, but we're all in the same plane. We're all in the same category. We all have to stand before our creator one day. We are going to take time to have the Lord's Supper now. We want to honor the one who made propitiation for our sin, the one who made a way that we could be right with our Father in heaven, that we could find forgiveness of our sins if we would place our faith in him. This is the time where we honor the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, the one we come to worship and to pray to and to sing to. So I'm going to ask Pastor Kyle, if he would come and lead us at this time.